This is the Happen to Your Career Podcast, episode 196. Unfortunately, in the process, I received zero credit for my work. So I went from essentially first author on the paper, putting together this animal model over the course of a little over a year, to third author in Stanford and my boss basically receiving the majority of the credit. So I was pretty disappointed. I felt that growing up, all I had to do was work harder than everyone and I would succeed. I never really thought about social skills as being very important to your success. This has happened to your career. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and then make it happen. Whether you're looking to do your own thing or find your dream job, you've come to the right place. I'm Scott Barlow. I'm an engineer who was living in Portland, Oregon, and was moving up to Seattle, Washington to support my wife's career change. This is Michael. He's made career changes before, but this one was different. A lot of the folks I talked to using sort of my normal channels were often saying, hey, we'd love to have somebody like you on the team. Unfortunately, we just let three or four people just like you go because there's not enough work to go around anymore. Listen for Michael's story later in the episode to learn how he used coaching to help him figure out what fits him and make the change to work he loves. You have somebody in your corner who's looking out for your best interest. They're pushing you to be the best version of yourself and to stretch and grow yourself consistently towards that best self. This is Scott Anthony Barlow, and you are listening to Happen to Your Career, the show that helps you figure out what work fits you by exploring other stories. We get to bring on experts like Angela Wagner, who uses her background in yoga and mindfulness to help people, or people that have a pretty amazing story, like Rebecca Maddox, who found herself stressed out and even causing herself physical harm from her career in politics, and she decided to make a change and move across the country. And these are people that are just like you. They've gone from where they are to what they really want to be doing. Today's guest is AJ Harbinger. I'm social skills coach for top performers. So I work with people who struggle with social anxiety and introversion and give them the tools and skills that extroverts use to get ahead in their career. In my conversation with AJ, we get to dive deep into how your social skills are a huge part of your everyday working life and how you can build those skills because ultimately, a lot of times they determine your success for whatever success looks like for you. And then we talk specifically about introverts and how introverts can learn the tools and the skills that extroverts use to get ahead in business. Because a lot of times it seems like, well... <laughs> extroverts have a have a leg up in some ways. So we want to even that playing field. And then how being vulnerable leads to connection with others. And if you don't already understand how this happens, this is a must listen. This is the piece of the missing puzzle, or rather the missing puzzle piece that connects everything together. No, no pun intended here, but it, it truly does. So we also talk about effective communication with family members and friends that can actually lead to support and understanding and, and stronger relationships and and how you can use a pretty a pretty simple set of steps to help you meet new people, have conversations with people that you don't even know necessarily and ultimately build relationships and build your network. It's it's pretty pretty cool. It is 
high value minute for minute. I think you're going to absolutely love it. It was a ton of fun to have this conversation with AJ. I always wanted to become a doctor, an MD. My dad was a single parent in raising me. and He was a blue collar guy. He put a lot of emphasis on education. And obviously the idea of his son becoming a doctor was very pleasing to him. So that was kind of my track going through high school and into college. And when I got into college, I decided that in order to really strengthen my medical school application, I should probably get a job in a hospital. So I got my first job in a hospital working in an emergency room, and I hated it. I felt that the quality of life for most people in the medical profession, especially in the emergency room, was pretty poor. I had worked with a number of doctors who were sort of tied to their pager and felt like they didn't have any time to really spend with their family or travel, and they had a large amount of debt. And up until this time, I had family friends that were doctors because my aunt was a nurse. So I kind of had the sunny, rosier picture of modern medicine. And this was my first real experience where it was unfiltered. And I found that I just didn't really like the clinic setting. I didn't like a lot of the pressures of being profitable as a medical professional. So yeah. I told my dad that I wasn't sure about medical school and I wanted to go travel a bit after I graduated which of course frustrated my dad. He felt that I had put all this time and energy and effort into science, biology, that my next step should be medical school. So he told me what any responsible parent would tell their son who's looking to travel is just get a job, right? I'm not going to pay for you to travel. Obviously. You need to put this education to work. So I got my first real job out of college in a lab setting. I was doing research with head and neck cancers. And my boss at the time was a surgeon, so he would essentially remove tumors from the head and neck region of patients, and I would take a small piece from the operating room, and then I would do a series of experiments on those tumors using animal models to essentially try to isolate a population of cancer stem cells, which was a really hot theory in cancer about 10 years ago. And after working for a year on this project, we were ready to publish. I was super excited to prove to my dad that I had started this biology career and it was going somewhere. And unfortunately, Stanford scooped us. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. A lab in Stanford was ready to publish the same results. And obviously, the way medicine works, they don't really care about the second person on the moon, right? They only yeah. want the person who discovered the event. So my boss was actually freaking out because he needed this paper to become a tenured professor at the university. So he made a deal with Stanford to basically combine results and publish together. And unfortunately, in the process, I received zero credit for my work. So I went from essentially first author on the paper, putting together this animal model over the course of a little over a year, to third author and Stanford and my boss basically receiving majority of the credit. So I was pretty disappointed. I felt that growing up, all I had to do was work harder than everyone and I would succeed. I never really thought about social skills as being very important to your success. Again, my dad was very big on education. So my boss in the lab could tell that I was really disappointed and it shook me up a bit. So he pulled me aside and he said, hey, I'm sorry that it shook out this way, but I do want to help you out. I feel like you did a great job on this project for me. And quite honestly, you're doing graduate student level work. You're the only one working on this project in a lab basically by yourself. So have you ever thought about getting a PhD? And it was really the first time I had considered it. And we started talking. He said, listen, let me talk to the University of Michigan and let me see if I can get you into next year's graduate school class. And sure enough, he did. 
So I applied to the University of Michigan Graduate School program for cancer biology, and I was accepted there. And at that point, I had to choose a new lab. I couldn't work in the lab that I was currently in because my boss, as I said, wasn't a tenured professor yet. And trying to find a new lab, I really wanted to make sure that I got into the best lab at the University of Michigan so that I wouldn't be in another Stanford situation where we were getting scooped and I wasn't going to get any credit. And the lab that I joined was a pretty famous lab at the University of Michigan with a principal investigator who was famous enough that he traveled a lot and he was an editor on a number of journals. So he was rarely there. In terms of a mentor, he wasn't really around very much. So his lab didn't have any graduate students. I was the only one. But I was convinced that since he was so famous, if I was to produce any results in this lab, I would get tons of credit and it would really advance my career. How did that work out? I'm super curious. <laughs> yeah, well, it was at this point where really my lack of social skills and then it started to become a lack of confidence impacted me. And in this lab, things weren't going my way. And Jordan and I had started a podcast in my basement in Ann Arbor. And that podcast was starting to get some listeners. And we were doing some pretty cool interviews with some famous people and some potential mentors. And then Jordan took a job on Wall Street as a lawyer. So he was moving to New York. And I found myself kind of like daydreaming essentially about what this podcast could be, what Jordan and I were working on versus my career in the lab, which was kind of floundering at this point. And my boss in the lab, him and I just never really got along. Intellectually put him on a pedestal and I was very sheepish and shy around him and my lab mates. And it really hurt my work in the lab. It hurt my morale in the lab. And I ended up developing some imposter syndrome where I felt that nothing was going my way and maybe nothing was going my way because I didn't belong here. Remember, my old boss kind of greased the wheels to get me into graduate school. Yeah. So that started to come back to haunt me mentally. And I started to doubt myself and my intellect and my abilities. So I was presenting to my thesis committee, what essentially I was hoping to work on as a thesis. And my boss had been traveling a lot, so I had sent him my slides for this proposal. And this was back in the BlackBerry days, right? So my boss had a BlackBerry on him, he was constantly on it. So when I sent him an email, I stupidly assumed that he just saw the slides and he was happy with everything because he did not reply. Well, in actuality, he had a chance to look at my slides. And in this committee meeting, he basically pantsed me. <laughs> oh, no. He pointed out everything that was wrong with my thesis idea and pointed out some research data points that I had put in my presentation that really didn't fit with my hypothesis. So they paused the thesis committee meeting and they actually asked to adjourn it and come back in 90 days, try it over, basically. And at this point, I was incredibly dejected. I just felt like I was getting nowhere in graduate school. I was on this dead end track with a boss now who really wasn't my ally, who wasn't having my back. So I called my dad and I said, Dad, I'm going to move to New York City to pursue this podcast with Jordan. And as you can imagine, he was thrilled. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so I dropped out of graduate school and moved all of my possessions into a, a truck and headed to New York City. And I had never lived outside of Michigan. It was my first time really traveling that far even. And New York was fantastic in the beginning, right? I was in my 20s. We had this great business that started with the podcast, turned into coaching, working with clients in person, as well as a Sirius XM radio show. And I felt that my dad would be thoroughly impressed with everything that we were able to accomplish in a short amount of time, but he was not. He was very frustrated that I left 
college, I left graduate school and chose a career that really, in his mind, wasn't a career at all. I mean, this was 10 years ago when no one had heard of podcasts. Yeah, I still find myself explaining what a podcast is 10 years later, and (laughs) I can't even imagine 10 years ago at this point. It's growing, but there are a lot of people who've never heard of it. Yeah, it's creeping up. It's building steam. At this point, I'm curious, what was driving this for your dad? Because obviously he had certain expectations and perceptions and everything along those lines. And (laughs) you clearly were becoming increasingly disagreeable to those, for lack of a better phrase. What was going on? Yeah, you know, my dad was in the Navy and he missed out on an opportunity to go to college. And he Uh, really saw that lack of education hurt him and his career and his professional life and led to him doing mostly manual labor. And obviously, all parents want their children to do better. So absolutely. The fact that I had some scientific aptitude and was good in school, he felt that I should continue with it to the end. So of course, like all good business ideas, things start out great. But we ran into some difficulties in New York. And none of us, the three business partners, me, Johnny and Jordan, really had any business experience. So we were learning on the fly, of course, and making tons of mistakes. And at that point, we had ran out of money. And we weren't certain after about a year and a half whether or not the company could even survive. And I called my dad in a moment of panic and hoping for some clarity. And of course, my dad's advice was, well, move back to Michigan and go back to grad school. (laughs) Right? Easy peasy. Well, Jordan, Johnny, and I decided that even though we were having this frustration and this difficulty in growing the business, we still wanted to give it one last go. So we then relocated the entire business to Los Angeles. This was about eight years ago. And then when we moved here to LA, things started to pick up for us. And obviously, we've been in business now for 10 years. So I've been through the downturns and some of the upswings. But unfortunately, after moving to LA, my dad and I basically became estranged. We weren't really talking very much. He was very disappointed in my choice. And he actually didn't even tell friends and family what I was doing, which led to some difficulty. Obviously, I was proud of what I was doing, but he really didn't understand it. So Jordan and I actually being Michigan alumni, we got invited to give a talk at the University of Michigan after graduating as part of their lecture series called What I Wish I Learned in Undergrad. And of course, at this point, the business was still struggling. We were far from successful. So I called my dad. I was really excited. I was like, Dad, we're going to fly in Ann Arbor. I'm going to be giving this talk at the University of Michigan. And the only question he had for me was, how good are the football tickets? (laughs) (laughs) So... He really wasn't interested in what I was doing with the Art of Charm or what I had to talk about, but he loved Michigan football. So I was very fortunate, had an amazing weekend with my dad and Jordan's dad. We went to Michigan football game and had a private stadium tour. And then I had to give this talk with Jordan. And I was very nervous going into it. The first time in my life that I was going to be presenting in front of my dad, I had done a number of presentations, obviously in undergrad and graduate school, but never to room full of students and faculty and parents. So the talk went okay. It wasn't one of our best talks for sure, but it ended really well. And I could tell that my dad was kind of moved by what it was that we were teaching. And the focus of the talk was basically networking skills and how to nail a job interview, because obviously most graduating seniors are looking for a job. So they need advice on their interviews. And at this point, my dad really had a clear perspective of what the Art of Charm was about. And I flew back to LA and I was excited that I kind of rekindled my relationship with my dad. And unfortunately, he passed away suddenly, a heart attack. Oh wow! And I had to fly back home for the funeral and help my family out. And 
it was sudden there were no funeral arrangements and there was yeah. no will. So everything was kind of on my shoulders. And I remember getting the news and being handed his address book and just the sense of like dread of, oh man, how am I going to call all of his friends and family? And what do they know about me? What do they think I'm doing? What did my dad say about me? But to my shock, my dad actually, after this talk, called a lot of friends and family to brag about what I was doing at the Art of Charm. So even though I didn't know how proud my dad was, he did tell friends and family, and I was fortunate to hear that with his passing. So it was one of those moments where you kind of realize, one, how short life is, and two, how sometimes if you struggle to communicate and your parent struggles to communicate, right, you can lead to a lot of misinformation and feeling that the other person is against you and really they are supporting you. They just don't have the faculties to do it more open, loving way. So the company has been through some things. I've personally been through some things and it's fun now. Obviously, the career choice that I made worked out. But in those initial years, there was a lot of heartache, wondering, concern if things were going to work out. So I'm super curious. Clearly, all of that especially the situation with your dad and your dad passing away suddenly has had an impact on you. But I'm curious how much that drives what you're doing now, in what ways that impacts you now. Yeah. So one of the core concepts that we teach at The Art of Charm is how to be vulnerable and how vulnerability leads to connection. And when you talk about vulnerability, right, it's a pretty ambiguous word. What does be vulnerable mean? And we really break it down as part of your narrative, right? We all have a narrative, a story that we tell ourselves and a story that we share with the world. And your narrative is made up of three components, obviously, your past, those experiences you've had, your present, which is your values, your beliefs, your morals that kind of guide you on a daily basis, and then your future, which is your goals, aspirations, and sometimes it's your fears, right? Because fears can also motivate what your goals are. And for me, obviously, the past went through a little bit with losing my dad and not having the greatest relationship with him, largely due to lacking some basic social skills and understanding of how to communicate, have difficult conversations and show love when obviously things aren't going your way. My present, one of the things that my dad valued and instilled in me was this value of education. He felt that if you could achieve some semblance of knowledge, you had enough power to succeed in life. And I still firmly believe that even though I did leave graduate school and then getting into my future. Yeah, you know, aspirationally, I love the art of charm to be taught as curriculums in schools. I feel like these social skills are sorely lacking in a lot of our youth, and it leads to a lot of frustrations in people's careers and their love lives and their relationships but also the fear of failure, right? The fear of proving my dad right to a degree that the art of charm wasn't my future and I should not have gone in this direction. So that fear of failure definitely still motivates me to this day of making sure that we're dotting all of our I's and crossing all of our T's. I'm pausing for a moment because I am so impressed with you describing your background and where you have come from. And clearly, behind the scenes is somebody who's put together lots of trainings and developmental type talks and any number of other things too. What you just did there, <laughs> I see what you did there, AJ, in, <laughs> in terms of being able to take that story and then turn it into framework, the framework that you've utilized and clearly taught a number of different times and then be able to intersperse that story amongst the framework. That takes some practice. So kudos to you, first of all. And second of all, I love how you are 
an example of the product, for lack of a better phrase. I can't come up with a better one at the moment, but that's so cool. Yeah. We eat our own dog food, so to speak. <laughs> we live and breathe these concepts. In large part, that's one of the biggest reasons we were so drawn to teach it, because gaining these social skills for me, and a lot of your listeners will probably be shocked to hear this, I am introverted. I still am introverted, even though I have these tools and skills of extroverts. It's still energetically draining for me to go into a loud, crazy social environment and talk to lots of people. I feel at the end of those events, I need to unplug and sort of be alone, be in solitude to recharge. Whereas extroverts, obviously, they gain energy from being social. They feel supercharged when they're in those social environments. So I think that was the biggest thing is in my career, my career had stalled out in graduate school because I did not have effective communication skills. I found myself holding back, not sharing my thoughts and ideas. And over time, that holding back led to my lab mates and my boss thinking that I was arrogant, I was disinterested. And when you have that sort of situation where you're feeling and acting one way, but the people that you're interacting with are getting a different sense of who you are, it can obviously lead to a lot of frustration and heartache. So in building this company, in the very beginning, the social skills were mostly around, hey, how do I make more friends? How do I date women? But now it's really grown to building that confidence and knowing that you have those skills that you can walk into any situation and confidently express yourself and make sure that the other person knows who you are fully. There's no gray areas there where they can assume. Sometimes they can assume negatives. I'm an engineer who was living in Portland, Oregon and was moving up to Seattle, Washington to support my wife's career change. Remember, Michael? We already told you that he'd made some career changes before, but this one in particular, it was different. A lot of the folks I talked to using sort of my normal channels were often saying, hey, we'd love to have somebody like you on the team. Unfortunately, we just let three or four people just like you go because there's not enough work to go around anymore. Michael realized that this was not an opportunity for a change in location. This could be not just a lateral move from one city to another, but it could have the opportunity to be a promotion as well, leading projects to potentially leading teams of technical people. And that has sort of been where I wanted to be for a long time. As we worked with him, he began to explore a much bigger picture. It wasn't just about finding a job. It was about finding my place in a community and being able to show folks that I wasn't there just to just to find something. I was interested in our conversation beyond the mic needs a place to land in Seattle. He put in the work to really connect with people and made it happen. As we're speaking now, I'm sitting in my new apartment, having unpacked most of it in a gap week between when I left my old job and when I'm starting my new job. Congratulations to Michael on finding work he loves that fits his family's needs. If you also want to figure out what work fits you and find that fulfilling career that lights you up and gives you purpose, find out how coaching can help you step by step. Go to happentoyourcareer.com and click on coaching to apply or pause right now and text my coach to 44222. Again, you can just pause right now and we'll send over the application. Text my coach to 44222. And what was wonderful about working with the Happen to Your Career team was that I was able to learn so much about how to go from good to great in that, that career transition. Well, let's talk about that concept of holding back and also vulnerability, which is in some ways the opposite of holding back, I suppose. So you talked about this 
past, present, and future concept. I'd love to delve into that just a little bit more and particularly yeah. how people can get started in being more vulnerable day to day. Right. I think the biggest thing is a lot of us have this confusion or this misconception around connection. We feel or assume that connection happens through commonalities, shared interests. But in reality, connection happens through sharing of emotions because those are universal. We all have emotions and they're usually tied to experiences. So even if you and I have had vastly different experiences, right, and me telling my story, maybe you haven't gone to graduate school or had to give a presentation to a room full of people, but in hearing my story, you could sense the emotion of, oh, sounds to me like AJ was very nervous going into this talk. And now you can start to think about times in your life where you felt nervous. And that's really where the connection is. It's on that emotion. It's not on the experience or it's not on, oh, I went to Michigan, you went to Michigan. Okay, now we're friends. So when we talk about becoming vulnerable, it really starts with owning your past. And unfortunately, a lot of us, we've had these life lessons, but usually these life lessons are tied to some hardship, right? Some situations where we don't look our best. We don't achieve necessarily what we set out to achieve. And what happens to a lot of us is we hold on to the lessons, but we don't really share these with other people. We try to hide these and we give them a different social mask, so to speak, present ourselves as competent, all-knowing and impactful. But in reality, it's in these lessons that people can sense who we are as a human and, and get to know us better. So when we work with our clients, one of the first things we do on building your narrative is identifying two or three lessons in your past that have come through experience. And ideally, one or two of those should, you know, be an experience where things didn't go your way. And then we start, okay, once we have these experiences outlined, let's start talking about sharing them with people, sharing them with your friends, first and foremost, but then also sharing them with strangers. Because if you have a clear narrative, this person that you're talking to is going to find you charismatic, memorable, and ultimately they're going to feel much more connected to you than if you were just to spout off your resume or your accomplishments. Then getting into your present, you have to identify what your values are. And sometimes that takes talking to your friends. Hey, what do you think about me in terms of what I value or hold dear? A lot of my friends would say, for me, it's honesty and loyalty are really big, as well as obviously education. I find myself always trying to learn new skills. Yeah. So once you have that, those two components of your narrative together, we don't have to necessarily tackle the future just yet, but now we have a good starting point for us to guide our conversations. So when we start talking to people, when someone says, hey, be vulnerable, now you know, oh, okay, if I share these two stories of these lessons in my past, and fortunately for me, I've had the opportunity to share this story with thousands of people and teaching this course, your narrative starts to strengthen as you share the stories more and more, and all of a sudden, people now know you for these reasons, and they feel connected to you. That sounds fantastic and fine in theory and everything like that. And I've very much experienced and benefited from everything that you just described. However, the thing that jumps to mind is... Within that, those one to three lessons, like what are the context with which I might share those people? Do I just go up to people and be like, hey, so I had this happen in my past and you should know about this. Like where in what context does that get utilized to help bring a little bit more clarity into how people might begin getting started with this and being more vulnerable? Of course. Well, we like to think that there's three phases to the interaction and these three phases 
obviously there are different tools for each phase. The first initial phase is just getting people interested in you. So yes, of course, I'm not just walking up to people at a networking event and saying, all right, now I'm going to tell you my life story. What's up, AJ? I got fired 10 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> what do you think about them apples? <laughs> that first phase is really all about your nonverbal communication because we're setting the tone with that first impression. And our first impression is made before we open our mouth. Typically, it's when they first see us. Yeah. And then it's showcasing three parts of your personality that everyone resonates with. And that's fun, loving, having a backbone, so to speak. So we talk about being challenging, making sure that people don't see you as agreeable AJ, right? Unfortunately, a lot of times when we start a conversation with someone and we don't know them, we want to win their approval. So we find ourselves just shaking our head. Yes. Awesome. Cool. I totally agree. And over time, we just agree with everything. And that actually kind of pushes the person away. So we talk about at the start of the interaction, we want to get the other person talking. So we want to take some interest in them, ask them questions. When we're listening to those questions, we're listening, obviously, to the logical answer, but we're also listening to the emotions that are coming through their thoughts. At this point, we're now moving into the second phase of the interaction. We've got them a little interested. We've asked them some questions they've shared with us and we've related to them. Now we want to show them genuine interest, right? We want to reward their interest in us. So that's when we're going to give them a compliment. And the compliment typically should be around their personality, right? That's a much more genuine compliment than saying, hey, you're good looking or hey, you're tall. Anyone could say that to them. So if you're a good listener, obviously bits and pieces of their personality are going to come through. And at that point, you want to give them a genuine compliment. That's the second phase of the interaction, showing genuine appreciation of that person. And then the third phase, that's where we really share our narrative. And in that phase, what we're doing is we're trying to build a connection. So as we're listening to these emotions that they're sharing with us, we're going to pick an emotion that is resonating through one of these life lessons. And then that's the opportunity for you to begin sharing your narrative. So yeah, definitely don't lead with, hey, my dad died and I dropped out of graduate school. Typically, I'm leading with some questions to get to know the person and I'm always listening to their answer and then I'm responding to their answer in a way that's relatable by disclosing something about myself. A lot of times when we get nervous, especially when we have anxiety, we can find ourselves in the question trap where we just ask a question and we're in our heads so we're not really paying much attention to their answer and then, oh, it's back to us. So we got to say something. So then we just ask a follow-up question and ask a follow-up question. And all of a sudden the other person feels like they've shared a lot, but you haven't shared anything. They don't know you. So the formula that we discuss in class here at the Art of Charm for starting conversations with anyone, our conversation formula is, is quite simply, we ask a question, we listen to their answer, and then we respond with a statement. And if you follow that flow, if you ask a question, you listen to their answer, you respond with a statement. We found that typically Two questions where you ask someone else something leads to them now taking interest in you and asking you a question. And that's ultimately how conversations start. And how they flourish, I would say, too. Yeah, we say in order to be interesting, you have to be interested. People are not going to take interest in you until you take some interest in them. So asking questions is an easy way to do that. And as humans, we're all primed to answer strangers' questions. I mean, even if I were sitting at a stoplight, I'm listening to some music and the car pulls up next to me and rolls down his window, my first instinct is going to be roll down my window because that person is going to ask me something. They're going to need some help from me. So asking questions is a great way to start conversations. And also in those moments where you don't know what to say or you've run out of everything that you could possibly talk about, 
you ask a different question about the person. And again, you get that person opening up. And the beauty of questions is obviously their answer is going to be about themselves, right? So you're picking everyone's favorite conversational topic, which is themselves. Let me practice what you're preaching here. And let me challenge you a little bit on this. I hear all the time, and I suspect that many HTYCers that are listening right now do as well. Hey, you need to be genuinely interested in somebody, which, okay, that sounds great, obviously. But how do you actually do that? What are some ways where I can get out of my head and begin to be genuinely interested? What's some of the nitty gritty of that look like? So the best way that we talk about doing this are asking how and why questions. That So much like this conversation that we're having, right? Not knowing each other before hopping on yeah. the call here. The first thing that you're asking me is, how did you decide on this career path? And what happens? Well, I could talk for 30, 40 minutes, right? So when you ask how or why questions, that really gives the other person an opportunity to share their thoughts, their feelings, and their experiences. So now you have a lot to draw from in terms of sparking that interest. So it takes that initial curiosity and then becoming a good listener. And unfortunately, a lot of us, especially those of us that suffer from social anxiety, our listening skills tend to be dull. They're not very sharp. We end up thinking too much and not focusing on the other person. So that's why I say with the conversation formula, it's important that you listen to their answer with your eyes and your ears. What does that mean? What I mean by that is we're making eye contact as we're asking this question. So while I'm talking to you, let's say we're at a networking event or at a party, right? I want to make eye contact with you while I ask the question. One, so that you know I'm talking to you, right? In a crowded environment, sometimes people can assume, oh, that wasn't meant for me. But two, I can now see your facial expressions and your response to the question that I'm asking is going to first be seen through your facial expressions and then through your words. So allowing yourself to make some eye contact, read their emotional state as you ask the question, and then turn your ear and listen. We found that looking at someone and breaking their eye contact allows people who feel anxiety, who feel in their head to kind of take a moment to break and actually hear what the other person is saying. That is so interesting and so useful as well. On the note of anxiety, I'm really curious, what is one of the more difficult things that you've found to teach to someone who is experiencing lots of anxiety in terms of being able to connect with people in a genuine and vulnerable way? Yeah, so the entire basis of the program is really built around cognitive behavioral therapy techniques where you're learning something, you're experiencing something in the room, and then we go out in the real world and apply it. So essentially we teach a concept like this question answer statement, right? This conversation formula. So here's the formula, then we'll have them practice very simply with each other. So grab a partner in the room and just practice going through this formula, really training yourself to not fire back a question and a question and a question, but focus on making a statement. And in order to make a statement, you have to listen. So that's why the formula is so effective for those people who are analytical. Oh, if I have to follow the formula and make a statement, then I better be listening to what this person's saying or I'm not gonna be able to make a statement. So that's the first step. We practice with each other in class and then we bring in some of our coaches to then interact with the clients on camera. So then we videotape this interaction of you utilizing the conversation formula and we play back the video first with no audio 
So again, we're looking at what is this nonverbal communication? Because that's a big part of communication that a lot of us overlook. We get so focused on the words and what to say, we don't realize what our body language is saying. Then we play back with sound, the video, and we look at, okay, so what were those moments in conversation where you did ask a quick follow-up question or you didn't really disclose anything in the form of a statement? We pause the video and say, okay, well, now that we've seen this, what could you have said in this moment, right? So we start priming them, even though it's not happening real time, we start priming them to think about this. Okay, all I really need to do is slow down. A lot of us, when we have anxiety, we move really fast. Everything's on hyperspeed. So the video work slows things down for us. And then we go out here in LA and we actually apply these concepts out on the town with coaches watching you and giving you feedback the next day. So that's fantastic. With that, we're learning concepts, we're practicing them. We're breaking them down and getting some feedback, slowing the process down, and then we go outside in the real world and speed things up and give you that 360 degree feedback. That is amazing. I love that because really what you're talking about here is behavioral change. And that makes sense that you're using CBT techniques as well, but that's not the easiest thing in the world to do. And I love how you guys have developed this over the years. I want to ask you a completely different question, just out of curiosity too. For you, you've been teaching this for a while, and I think everybody comes from a place where they don't necessarily have social skills. Like That has to be learned somewhere, somewhere along the line. But what do you find that is the areas that you're working on personally for you now, or the areas that you find the tendency to be most difficult, even though you know all the stuff? Yeah. So I think the big thing that we were very fortunate with is we've had some incredible mentors. Yeah. And I think one of the big reasons we went into coaching was just the value in having someone who's been through the process, working with you, guiding you, helping you. Yeah. So a lot of these social skills that I'm talking about were assimilated through working with mentors, taking Dale Carnegie courses and other self-development and business development courses, and then good old fashioned hard work of applying these concepts and working on yourself. In terms of what I'm currently working on, it's still adding some structure and discipline to my daily life. So I tend to be more spontaneous. I tend not to be as structured, which is a little unusual for a scientist, but (laughs) right now time management is one of those focuses for me so that I can maximize the scarce resource of time obviously running a company, there are a lot of demands and a lot of things that I have to get done. So that's an area that I'm actively working on as well as just the health and physical fitness. So I'm not a gym rat by any means, but obviously my dad's mortality has shown me that I need to put some focus and emphasis behind my health and nutrition. So that's been another area that I've put some focus on over the last couple of years, but it's definitely a struggle finding the motivation. And I'm fortunate that I have a really supportive girlfriend and a lot of my friends who I can count on to be that accountability buddy to help me get over the hump, so to speak, with exercise. And then for fun, I'm trying to learn how to play golf. So challenging my mental and physical skills there as well. Oh my goodness. golf is one of those things where you can spend so much time into it and then you sort of plateau well maybe plateau isn't the right word but you sort of get to an area where uh, it is increasing in smaller steps and i used to live in portland oregon and portland has tons of golf courses so you can play all year round in portland if you want 
It's kind of like, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's some areas of California where you can do that too, right? That was a fun time for me because I got to go and for about a year dive into golf and play three times a week or something else along those lines. But right. with all of those areas, what are you doing, particularly in the time management area that is working for you right now, AJ? So the biggest thing is turning off notifications and creating blocks of time for me to either be in my inbox or to be working exclusively on something and ways that I've done that. So I've removed electronics from the bedroom so that I'm not farting around on phone, iPad, computer, and I'm certainly not focused on what's going on on social media in terms of getting ready for bed or getting up in the morning. And then from there, it's blocking off time saying, okay, for this hour, I'm going to just focus on my inbox. I'm not going to check my inbox religiously all day long because that's where a lot of time gets lost. You find yourself just doing things to do things, but it's not really moving things forward. So it's creating chunks of time that's set in my schedule on my calendar. Hey, this is the time I'm going to tackle my inbox and then I'll tackle it again at this time tomorrow so that I'm not finding myself getting drawn on these goose chases where I have time set aside to create content, which is a big part of what we do, obviously getting the word out and sharing these concepts with you guys and your listeners. And then, okay, running the coaching programs, that's time I have set aside every single week. And then business development, okay, what else can I be doing to grow the business? So I'm typically focused on those three areas and I have them chunked in my calendar so that I stay on that focused path. And then I also have a weekly check-in to say, okay, in terms of my to-do list, how effective was I this week? What are some areas that I sort of put off? Oh, now I know instead of putting off, this should be the thing that I tackle first next week to just make sure it gets done. But that's still been a work in progress. I'm by no means a time management expert, but that is an area that I'm trying to grow and strengthen. Well, I so appreciate you sharing and I appreciate you taking the time and making the time to come on the show in the first place. This has been super fun conversation for me and I thank you. I don't have anything else to say, but thank you. I do really appreciate it, AJ. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So for people that want to get more AJ, are interested in the art of charm, how can they find out more about you and what you do? Well, we have a podcast. So if you're a podcast listener, I would say that's the best place to start. The Art of Charm podcast, where we interview successful people, and celebrities, athletes, and try to distill down some actionable steps so that our listeners can improve their life based on these life lessons that these really successful people have had. And we also offer toolbox episodes where we do cover these social skills that I was going over with you in detail. So you can go to theartofcharm.com slash toolbox to find more social skills content from us at The Art of Charm. Those are all free episodes where we break down how to have a conversation with people, how to build a social circle, how to be more confident. If you're interested in upping your social skills, we also have a social skills challenge that you can find at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. It's 30 days testing your mettle when it comes to social skills. And there's an awesome supportive Facebook group where you can meet like-minded individuals who are trying to improve themselves on Facebook. I love it. I would absolutely encourage you to go over there, check it out. I have been on the site. There's so many great resources. Take the challenge. Thank you again, AJ. I so very much appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's a great time.
Hey, if you've absolutely loved this episode and you want to be able to upgrade your social skills, your connection skills, your vulnerability skills, then head on over to happentoyourcareer.com slash 196 and you can get the downloadable worksheet that we've made for you to be able to make all of that happen. That way, that way you've got it in a nice and easy format and you can begin practicing this immediately. And I will say that being able to connect genuinely with others has been one of the possibly, I'd say possibly the largest thing, the biggest thing, the most impactful thing that has propelled my career forward over the last 15 years. So I can't underestimate the the value of this. Head on over to happentoyourcareer.com forward slash 196. And then right there on the page, you'll find uh, many of the resources that we talked about and step-by-step process plus downloadable PDF worksheet that you can you can use to guide yourself through this, this formula that AJ discusses here. And I think that you're going to, I think you're going to love it. Also, thank you so much for everybody who has headed over to iTunes, headed over to Stitcher, and left us ratings and reviews. This is so amazing. We've got another one, another five-star rating and review from LB MedTech. It says, I love listening to Scott and his team. So much actionable information you can take away and implement, and he truly cares about people and their happiness. Some episodes I've listened to several times in a row. Thank you for listening several times in a row, by the way. It was Scott's podcast that led me to contact one of his coaches, and they have helped me implement some major mindset changes in my own life. Highly recommend to anyone interested in finding work that suits them. That is so awesome. And we very much appreciate it. We appreciate the feedback. And this helps more people find happen to your career, which means that we get more people to work that they absolutely love. Hey, we have even more in store for you coming up next week on happen to your career. This episode is all about being able to work with much more autonomy and specifically about working remotely. So if you've ever wondered about remote work, take a listen to what's coming in store. Well, so then um, I got laid off because it was 2009 and I was working in media in New York and it was a bloodbath, literally. I was just desperate. I mean, I was backed into a corner, you know? Like, it's unfortunate that often we have to sort of hit kind of like a really big bump in the road or kind of, you know, hit bottom or whatever you kind of analogy you want to use to really force us into action. But that was completely what happened to me. And, you know, in retrospect, I see it as such a gift. It definitely didn't feel like a gift in the moment. All right, join us next week to figure out if remote work is right for you and then how to find it. We'll see you then. Until then, I am out. Adios. Mm-hmm.